both in our personal biographies and also in our literary efforts. For example, <clears throat> he was born in Los Angeles, California, where I, whereas I was born in Long Beach, California. I think that's really quite significant. And um, he had a little problem, a little truancy problem in high school, um, which reminded me of my own high school experience. And uh, while he actually got kicked out, I always thought about it. And I was in the military trying to figure out a way to get out. And he was in the military and he figured out a way to get out and I and my hat's off to him. He read a lot when he was uh, preparing to be a writer. I read a lot. I checked books out of the library. He checked them out of the supermarket and the bookstores and they were, I think, they were unconscious donations, a phrase which I developed this afternoon and I hope he approves of it. And I think he read something like 200 crime novels in preparation for his work. I thought a lot about crime growing up and he did a lot of it and that's and he has something that I admire very much he has a background that is most suitable for a crime writer my graduate degrees please my mom a whole heck of a lot but they've always been a kind of disgrace on the book cover and I've tried to keep them out of sight the less initiated are under the impression that an academic career has nothing to do with crime, but those of you who have shared an academic background know that's not the case. On another, on, <laughs> on a less serious note, <laughs> he is the author of Brown's Requiem and Clandestine and Blood on the Moon and Because of the Night and more significantly, of a quite remarkable group of four novels referred to as the Los Angeles Quartet, The Black Dahlia, and The Big Nowhere, and L.A. Confidential, and most recently, White Jazz. In reading um, recently Black Dahlia, I was struck by the enormous power of the language, which is a representation uh, as accurate a representation of the speech of real people as I can remember having read. I think there is in an odd way a kind of powerful poetry in his prose and this has been recognized by others. Peter Guthridge in the London Times said of him that among that handful of crime writers he is one of those few whose work is regarded as literature. And having looked at his work, I can say that, indeed, that is the case. Um, we're honored tonight to have James Elroy as our speaker. I welcome him up.
audience. Yeah. If you came this way, don't tempt me. T.S. Eliot once wrote, if you came this way, starting from anywhere, at any time and in any season, you would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Now that's some pretty heavy shit to start with. So I'm going to do a brief segue and tell you that I am here because I kneel at the holy altar of American crime fiction. Now let's take the time machine back to the waning days of World War II, 1945. Der Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, and his chief toady and henchman, Martin Bormann, are hanging out in the Fuhrer bunker. Bad fucking juju is coming down. The Russians are invading. It's a big fat fucking drag. The Third Reich is crumbling. Hitler is in his cups. He's mourning the loss of the Third Reich. And he's saying, Martin, 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 I fucked it all up. The thousand year Reich is down the fucking toilet. And I blame it all on myself. Bormann said, no, my Fuhrer. You played out your string brilliantly. Every single move was radiantly brilliant. Hitler said, no, 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 no. Martin, you're too kind. No, no, no. Bormann said, my Fuhrer, my Fuhrer. You wouldn't have done anything different were you to come back again? And Hitler said, yes. Yes, Martin, I would. Next time, no more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> now that, to me, sums up what American crime fiction is. It is the language of psychosis. It is the language of the big, fat, postulating urban pimple spritzing just like that against a giant mirror in which we all see our hideous destinies reflected. Every single one of us, every single one of us. Bill Clinton isn't a colossal fuck up. And by the way, you heard it first here, he's, bo he's boning Barbara Streisand. He just inherited an America that's been going downhill for 200 years, it's finally caught up with the president. Right? I'm here to tell you some stories about the American journey that I'm going to deftly tie it in to some groovy, snappy epigrams about writing fiction, because that's why we're here, right? And I have to justify the title, Crime Fiction, Come Too Far With Me. Then I'm going to open it up for questions, and believe me, no question, no query, is too intimate. Remember, remember what I've just divulged about the President of the United States. Yeah. Also, women, Bill Clinton. I have it on very good authority. 
questions, snappy epigrams. I'm going to tell each and every one of you how to go out and write books that sell as much as the Kinsey Milhone series of Sue Grafton. Yeah. And if you believe that, I'll sell you a brand new Pendejo penthouse and an even more brand new Chorizo Chevrolet. Let's take the time machine back to the early 1950s in Los Angeles. I am now going to introduce you to an unholy trio. Jack Big Daddy Santo, Robber Killer. His chief henchman, Robber Killer Emmett Perkins. Their mall, Barbara Graham. Now, I'm seeing some nods out there, and you're thinking, Susan Hayward, I want to live. She was railroaded to the gas chamber. Susan Hayward looked good being strapped in. She wore a bustier. It really sort of pushed her up all over the place. And she was innocent, right? No, come on, man. This is the deep, dark American journey. And I'm not going to go so simple-minded as to give you the story of a woman wrongly convicted. No, she was guilty as hell. There was a woman. She was the mother of a gambler named Tutor Shearer. And her name was Mabel Monahan. Rumors circulated throughout the kinder, gentler Los Angeles underworld of the early 1950s that Tudor Shearer left a $100,000 stash with his mom while he went around gambling. Mabel Monahan, the 72-year-old hairbag with a nice pad in Pasadena, was supposed to have a hundred big ones on hand, minimum at all times. Well, cooler heads, more judicious criminal brains addressed this, and they all came to one conclusion. No! Bullshit. Jack Big Daddy Santo, Emmett Perkins, Barbara Graham, they believed it. The time is now early 1953. In the previous 18 months, Santo and Perkins have killed a family of four. A man named Gard Young, his wife, their two children, for $7,000 in grocery receipts. They killed a gold miner, rumored to have quite a sizable stash, for 200 bucks. These are human beings as ugly, venal, mean-spirited, misanthropic, and generally chicken shit as human beings can get. And Barbara Graham was their woman. They needed some extra muscle for this job, so they recruited a plug ugly named John True, who's a deep sea diver, and a slumlord named Baxter Shorter, who ran a flea bag hotel on then LA's glamorous Bunker Hill. Barbara Graham was to be the inside woman. She was to knock on the door and say, my car broke down. Please, please let me inside to use the phone. They did it. They went out to the smokehouse in Burbank, California, had a big barbecue beef platter, smoked some reefer, sucked it on down to cinders. Barbara knocked on the door. Mrs. Monahan, against her better judgment, opened the door. Barbara went reefer crazy, grabbed a gun, beat the old hairbag's head in. She died. And guess what? There's no fucking hundred grand. Baxter Shorter, Slumlord Baxter, 
one mean plug ugly, he freaked out at this. He took off. He ran around the corner, called an ambulance. But the dumb cocksucker sent them to Lakeside Drive in Los Angeles, not in Burbank. So they arrived too late to do Mabel Monahan any good. It's 1953. It's a kinder, more gentle American underworld and Los Angeles underworld. Ripples went out. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. If we don't hand up the fiends, the fiends who did this to a 72-year-old hairbag, the shit is really going to hit the fan, and we're all going to get our asses kicked the way Rodney King did 30-odd years in the future. Word went out. Inside 24 hours, Burbank PD, LAPD, LA District Attorney's Office knew who the three fiends were. They knew it. Three fiends went to ground. The DA rented a suite at the Miramar Hotel. Not this one. The one in Santa Monica, California. Brought in some lawyers, and they plea bargained. Baxter Shorter came in. He ratted the guys. John True came in. He ratted the guys. They all pointed the big finger ruski at Barbara Graham, Jack Big Daddy Santo, and Emmett Perkins. Couldn't find him, though. Couldn't find him. Baxter disdained police protective custody because he wanted to go back and collect some rents at his flea bag hotel on Bunker Hill. It was the wrong thing to do. Emmett Perkins knocked on his door, said, Baxter, you come with me. Santo and Perkins took Baxter Shorter way out into the desert, beat his head in with a rock, and left him there to feed the crows. One witness down. John True got scared. He got scared for real. He deposed. He went into police custody. He gave the fuzz a tip as to where Barbara Graham, Emmett Perkins, and Jack Santo were. The L.A. cops raided. They found them all nude, engaged in an orgy scene, sucking on a big, fat reefer, sucking it down to a cinder. <laughs> Just like they did when they whacked out Mabel Monahan. The DA got indictments. The L.A. County Grand Jury, rubber stamp corrupt grand jury, voted unanimously to indict. Murder and conspiracy indictments were handed down. Baxter, Emmett, and Barbara cooled their heels in the L.A. County Jail. But the cops were afraid that Barbara Graham might get a sympathy factor going in her favor. They also heard a rumor that she went sapphic while she was in stir. It was a young woman, good-looking, nice-looking, Fox, that was selling two doors down from her, who was in there for felony, hit-and-run, manslaughter, drunk driving. She was doing a year in the L.A. County Jail. They said, Sylvia, come here, come here. You want to get out? You want to get out next week? Exchange love notes with Barbara Graham and get her to admit that she whacked out Mabel Monahan on March 9th, 1953. Well... Barbara didn't comply all the way, but I've heard that those napkin notes, Mano Manischewitz, uh, are some of the hottest documents of the secret 1950s. Well, put that aside, it still wasn't enough. Somebody else told the fuzz that Barbara liked hunky Italian guys. So they sent in a hunky Italian L.A. cop named Sam Siriani to try to sell Barbara an alibi for the night of March 9th, 1953. 
They exchanged some even groovier, even hotter napkin notes. And if you want my opinion, and remember, I'm the one that broke the word to you all on the press, I think Barbara liked men. <laughs> it wouldn't go. To make a very long and very sordid story just a tad shorter and that much punchier, let me tell you that Barbara Graham, Emmett Perkins, and Jack Big Daddy Santo were tried, they were convicted, and they paid for their heinous crime with their lives on June 3rd, 1955. Barbara Graham admitted her guilt the night before she was fried to San Quentin Warden Harley Teets. And that is my story. And that story forms the subtext and thematic basis for all of my L.A. Quartet novels. This is a monstrous story of crime. It is a story of viciousness and pathos, hand in hand, just like this, and a corrupt political social system that did not trust the trial of three eminently guilty people to the legal processes they had to send ringers in. Now, you come up with the epigrams, you come up with the snappy one-liners, and on that note, ask me the most excruciatingly embarrassing, dark, deep, probing, embarrassing, intimate, postulating, corrosively, ugly, intimate questions imaginable, because I will fulfill your wildest expectations of candor. Please, each and every one of you. I'm an exhibitionist. Yes, this woman here. What? Frequently. Frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I floss with a chainsaw, as a matter of fact. In fact, I lost 45 pounds just last week. Yeah. I was circumcised. Yeah. They had to perform the operation with a chainsaw. Doctor was a morphine junkie with a 16,000-pound gorilla on his back, and I came within about two seconds of the L.A. Chainsaw Massacre, at which time I'd be walking around talking like this. Come on, people. Who killed the Black Dahlia? Barnaby Conrad wants to know who killed the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia was a young woman named Elizabeth Short who was murdered in Los Angeles in January of 1947. Not surprisingly, I based my book, The Black Dahlia, on the Black Dahlia murder case. I adhered to all the facts of the case, as far as they were known, then digressed fictionally to provide you with a groovy solution. I don't know who killed the Black Dahlia. I don't think anyone outside of Elizabeth Short's killer and maybe a few intimates knows who did. I can conjecture you up what I think is a reasonably plausible scenario. Elizabeth Short's body was found on the morning of January 15, 1947. She'd been hideously tortured. Her nude body, chopped in half the waist, was dumped into the bushes outside 39th and Norton, a vacant lot area at that time. There were many, 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 many signs of torture, no signs of forcible rape, no signs of recent consensual intercourse. Nobody knows exactly whether Elizabeth Short was killed by a man or a woman. Now, this is not the way I played it in my book. Elizabeth Short was a flaky and promiscuous young woman. She cut a wide swath in post-war 
Lowlife LA. She left behind a black book with the names of 400 men. One page was auspiciously ripped out. Every one of her known intimates was questioned over and over and over and over again. This was the largest manhunt in Los Angeles history. The cops felt that they were nowhere near close. Now, she was last seen at the Biltmore Hotel on the evening of January 10th, 1947. Her body, as I said, was found the morning of the 15th. Nobody knows where she was during this four and a half day. What I think happened was she met a man, a man she was not known to in any way, shape, manner, or form prior to her first missing day. The man did not have a police, pardon me? The man did not have a police record. The man was not a pervert. Nobody saw Elizabeth Short with the man. If the man had no police record, no one voiced suspicions about this man, if there was no physical evidence linking Elizabeth Short to this man, then all the cops in the world couldn't put the two of them together. I think it was an absolutely perfect case of a random killing. Didn't they think it was a surgically done it could have been anyone who'd taken an anatomy class, it could have been a veterinarian, it could have been a doctor, it could have been any World War II draftee or enlistee who had any kind of corpsman training. I don't know. And I think one of the enduring powers of a Black Dahlia murder case is that we don't know and we never will. Yes? Elizabeth Short was known in her death only as the Black Dahlia because she dressed solely in black. A reporter for the L.A. Herald named Bevo Means coined it. You know, Jack Smith of the Times, you know, has laid claim to that, but more realistically, it was Bevo Means. Some people said that she was called the Black Dahlia in life. I don't believe that. The movie, The Blue Dahlia, the Raymond Chandler scripted, Let's see, who else was involved in that? George Marshall directed, John Hausman produced movie. It come out nine months previous. I think that the papers just seized on the blue dahlia, transposed black to blue. Yes, this man here. There was a L.A. hoodlum of the time named Upshaw, he was a fringe character associated with Mickey Cohen. I believe that he was one of the people that came forward when the Fuzz held their snitch auditions at the Miramar Hotel. Yes, this woman here. What is the main source of information that he uses for the history of L.A.? My imagination. I have played very fast and loose with facts. If they don't suit my dramatic purposes, I shit-can them. Uh, for the Black Dahlia, my epic of the Red Scare, I read a book about the Red Scare and let my imagination go wild. The Black Dahlia murder case required extensive research. There was some research involved in my book, L.A. Confidential. Now, parenthetically, there was a wonderful police brutality scandal of 1951, wherein for sheer damage, the Rodney King case was you know, eclipsed a thousand times over. That was the Bloody Christmas case, wherein seven Latin punks beat up a couple of cops, and I'm talking about inflicted very minor damage. Some off-duty drunk cops, the time was Christmas Eve, 1951, 
raided the cell block where these young men were held, and beat the shit out of them for 12 hours. Chief William Parker, to his everlasting credit, came down very hard and demanded, uh, almost given, given Parker a paradoxically large amount of public accountability to this case. He went public with it when he didn't have to. Where's the state of crime in L.A. nowadays? Statistically staggering. Mechanized to an extraordinary degree. When? No. You're talking about the, you know, the Italian da 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 Those guys? The goombas? The greaseballs? They're on their way out. Yeah. They're, you know, there are new, groovy, powerful, kamikaze-like, suicidal, you know, ethnic gangs now that are eclipsing them as organized forces in America. Yes? Drac Dagna died of a heart attack in 1956. Yes, this man here. Yes. It's an excellent question. My perspective is... What is the question? The question is, why are we so scared of crime, but why do we like to swim around in the toilet of crime fiction as much as we do? Well, we like to do that because it gives us a precarious impunity. We can touch the darkness and remain safe from it which is why we get West Tech and why we live on the West Side and why we don't venture down to 102nd and Avalon too frequently. I would, I would like to say that my design in writing crime fiction is to scald you more than anybody else and give you a situation that you can't shake. I would like to leave my readers with a sense that the ramifications of the violent acts that I describe in my books will continue forever and ever and ever. Huh. Like death and taxes. Yes, this woman here. No. No. There are drugs now, and I'm thinking cheekily of crack cocaine, that induces homicidal acts in people that are not normally prone to homicide. It's completely eclipsed heroin as a drug, as a source of revenue, and as a social problem. Heroin addicts, by and large, don't commit violent crime. Crack addicts do routinely. It becomes a question of, if we don't try to interdict, will that one crack addict get the one vial of crack and need that $120 bill that you have when you're walking down State Street one day. Thus, I think that even though until some sort of drastic, revolutionary, radical measures are taken, I think that whatever it costs, we should spend on interdicting hard narcotics, even though it's just basically shoveling shit against the tide. Yes, this woman here.
I, I was born in Los Angeles in 48, which is the year of the rat in Chinese astrology. So my parents hatched me right on cue. And I remember a kinder, gentler high school, uh, a kinder, gentler, somewhat less psychotic L.A. criminal milieu. Now, Leonard seemed to portray me as some kind of badass criminal, which I never was. Yeah. Basically, I holed up in parks, drank cheap wine, pulled my pud, drove drunk, did county jail time, broke into houses and sniffed women's undergarments. <laughs> I was never too great a threat to anyone but myself and a woman who was my probation officer named Elizabeth Heath that I was in love with. <laughs> so I'm not exactly John Dillinger here. <laughs> I would go to jail and I would do 10, 15, 20 day stints. New County Jail, Biscaloose Center, and Wayside Honor Rancho, in and around L.A. Jail in the late 1960s, early 1970s, which was my term of trial, was a kinder, gentler time to be doing county jail time. At the time, I thought, Jesus Christ, it's always the same thing. Two stupid white guys, two stupid black guys, and two stupid Mexican guys sitting around saying, yeah, you know Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, man, what about her? I fucked her. She said I was the best. Oh, you fucked her too, man? Orale, I say. No, man, she said I was the best. It was just that preposterous. You know, you do push-ups on your cell floor. You know, you go to the day room. Black inmates used to rip up copies of Ebony and Jet and paste it to the walls with a shit called Red Death, which you used to get in the New County Jail breakfast. Place it up there. So you have Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson and all those guys on the cell wall. You do push-ups, you read the Bible, and you lie about all the sex that you had. Yeah, I killed that man. I killed him, man. He came onto my bitch. Yeah, who's your bitch? Ava Gardner, man. What? No, man, she was my bitch. It was preposterous bullshit. Yeah, and the greatest danger that I was really in, except I tangled once with a Mexican drag queen named Peaches, who had hands like Ali. My head was bobbing back and forth like this. I looked like one of those dogs in the back of lowrider cars. My biggest, the biggest danger that I was in in jail was trying not to laugh. More questions? Yes, this man here. Mm-hmm. Man asked me if I, if I have to come back to L.A. to renew the juices. The answer is no. The L.A. that I write about is the L.A. of the 1940s and 50s. It's not there anymore. I could no more write a novel about contemporary L.A. than I could flap my arms and fly to Milwaukee. For one thing, it's largely multicultural now, and I know nothing about Asian crime, Latin crime, or black gang crime. I know nothing about 1993 forensic procedure. I come back to sell books, to see my buddies, and to sniff the air like that and get a taste of how far I've come. Not exactly gloat, 
but I was so poor in Los Angeles that just to be able to rent a car, to drive around with a driver's license, to rent a hotel room, to buy a meal, leave the tip, and not skip out on the check, remains a big fucking thrill to me. Yes, this man here. Basically what happened, this man asked me how I moved from juvenile and adult because I was a delinquent up until the time I was 29. Uh, basically, I quit drinking and using drugs. And I got sober. And I realized what I wanted to do with the rest of my life was write crime novels. So I wrote a crime novel and I sold it. It was sold as a paperback original to Avon Books in 1980 for a whopping 3,500 bucks. At that time, I was 32 years old and I was a caddy at Bel Air Country Club in Los Angeles. I thought, wow, you sell your first book, and they give you all this dough, and then you quit your job, you write another book, and they give you some more dough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was wrong, because 3,500 bucks in two installments, minus my agent's cut, came to about 11 cents an hour, you know, given all the work that I had put in on that book. So I wrote another book, Sold it for another 3500 bucks. Figured out I'd had enough of Los Angeles, so I moved to suburban New York, outside New York City, where I got a job at Wykegill Country Club, caddying. Wrote another book, wrote another book, wrote another book. And by the time I had written my fifth book, I was tenuously making a couple grand here, a couple grand there. I quit caddying, and that's taken off from there. So I was in the incongruous position of being a published award-nominated and somewhat praised novelist and a country club caddy working for chump change, carrying rich people's golf bags. And you never written anything until you were 29? Barnaby knows the answers you people want to hear. No, I had never written a word. Yeah, I wrote a poem once. You want to hear it? <laughs> Bring back the dead. Give them head. Remember the songs they sang and the words they said. From protracted adolescence to premature senescence, I do penance with regret for the epiphanies I never held and the joy I never met. It worked once. Yes, this woman here. Call me dog. Why be formal? Jim Thompson, this woman asked me if Jim Thompson, uh, she cited the tragic circumstances of Jim Thompson's long, uh, long tailspin to, uh, to death via alcoholism and his relative obscurity while he lived, although he's having a half-assed renaissance these days, unfortunately too late to do him any financial good. Uh, no, Thompson was not an influence on me. I have read two Thompson books, Heed the Thunder and King Blood, both at the behest of my friend and publisher Otto Penzler, who asked me to read the books and write introductions for him. I have not been compelled to read further into the Thompson oeuvre. My greatest influence is probably Joseph Wambaugh. I think Joseph Wambaugh is the most important crime writer since Dashiell Hammett. I think he is an infinitely greater writer than Raymond Chandler. I think he is more important to the evolution of crime fiction than Raymond Chandler. 
And I owe him the, the deepest debt of gratitude. Yes, they do. Uh, woman back there. This woman asked me what my writing habits are and whether I write outlines. I write the Moby Dick of outlines every time I write a book. The four L.A. Quartet books were carefully plotted out, voluminously plotted out, well in advance of the writing. I write outlines, well, let me just say, the outline for the Black Dahlia was 142 pages. The outline for the Big Nowhere was 156 pages. The outline for L.A. Confidential was 211 pages. The outline for, for White Jazz was 164 pages. The outline for my new novel, American Tabloid, is 293 pages. This is all the physical action described. This is every bit of investigatory minutiae cross-referenced since the time God was a pup and dinosaurs ruled the earth. Everything is thought out well in advance. I know everything the characters are going to do. I make sure that everything is thematically valid and logically inviolate before I write the first word. And my agent, Nat Sobel, who's also been the greatest editor that I've ever worked with, certainly the chief architect of my career, then reads it and generally makes anywhere from between 30 to 40 pages of notes. We go over every instance on every page of those 30 to 40 pages. I leave nothing to chance. I make sure that I have a complete universe jam-packed with characters and that everything fits. And if anybody here is thinking about writing a crime novel, I urge you to go at it circumspectly, judiciously, painstaking, meticulously. Yes, woman over here. Yes. I like Andrew Vax, okay? Yeah. I don't think he's anything to write home for. Yeah. I could take him, I could take him or leave him. Really, that's, that's it. And trust me, Barnaby, you know, if I've got a rag coming, you know, I'm going to say it. Y yes, man over here. I'm stuck in the 1940s and the 1950s, and to one degree or another, although I certainly don't condone the political injustices of that era, my greatest empathy is with fucked up, shit kicker, fascist cops who are the toadies of a corrupt system. I feel the lives of these men in my bones. I think the history of the American crime novel is the history of 20th century American crime, and it is the story of bad white men, which frankly is why I'm frequently called a racist, fascist, homophobe by reviewers, and why I called my book White Jazz, my most recent book. It's embedded in me. I'm 45 years old. And I can remember not a kinder, more decent L.A., but I can inchoately recall a shadow world of men making deals of the fix being in. I evinced absolutely no precocity as a child except that I was an early and articulate reader. 
as much as I can tap into my subconscious and tap into my conscious memories, this is what I come up with. This sense of dark events transpiring outside the viewfinder of my eyes and my brain. This is what I tap into. This is where the realistic period dialogue springs from. Man over here. <laughs> Daddy-o, I was impetuous. When I wanted to sniff panties, I wanted to sniff panties. And nothing else would satisfy me. Yes, this woman here. My parents are dead. My mother was murdered when I was 10 years old. And the killing was never solved. And uh, it's a famous case. Not, it's not a famous case in the outside world. It's certainly part of, you know, of Elroy fame, however far that extends. And I have certainly exploited it for, for all it's worth. Uh, I feel the woman now more than I did when I knew her. She died when I was 10. Uh, she was an ironic woman. And I think she'd dig me cashing in on her death. I have very try, I've tried very consciously to draw a parallel between my mother's death and the death of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. And I think emotionally that it's true. I think it's valid. I think that the cause and effect is particularly potent. My mother was murdered in June 1958. I read about the Black Dahlia murder case on the occasion of my 11th birthday in March of 1959. My father died in 1965. So I've been on my own for a while. But maybe for all I know, there's a heaven. I just hope they have books there. And big, fat fucking book deals, too. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, from the uh, beginning to the end. The same way you read a book. That's the way you do it. Yes, this man over here. Well, I, I, should, I should enlighten you on the fact that basically what I probably did was six to nine months of county jail time in various Mickey Mouse stretches. It's not like I went to the big house, you know. In fact, I would not even call my crime career Mickey Mouse. I'd call it Minnie Mouse. You know, I think that's more like it. More along the lines of Peaches, the drag queen with the fast hands. No, nobody encouraged me to write. I always had my snout stuck in a book. And I had a probation officer for a while, but I fell in love with her. Yeah. In fact, I used to get the biggest crushes on women who looked like her for years and years and years and years afterwards. Yeah. Did she know about your unrequited love? Yeah, she did. You know what she said? <laughs> yes, I'm very happily married, yeah. Is this your first marriage? It's my second marriage. <laughs> what do you think of Mayor Bradley? I heard Mayor Bradley. I get some good dope on him. I heard Mayor Bradley was the bag man to the local bookie establishment when he ran the night watch at Central Vice. How's that? Right up there with Bill Clinton is, you know. Yes, the man over here. I don't know. 
I don't know. I, uh, L.A. today I know absolutely jack shit about. I don't know. I wrote Brown's Requiem 1979 into 1980. I was catting at a country club then, making very little money. I had a cheap pad in Venice, California, and uh, I got 300 bucks together to get copies made up. There was a woman whose lawn I mowed. Uh, her name was Maureen Connell. She wrote a book called Mary Lacey. I asked her about setting me up with her agent. She thought I was some schmuck that you know had some bumfuck manuscript. She said, get Writer's Market 1980. I went out, I bought Writer's Market 1980. I looked up literary agents. I picked the names of four agents who said that they would read unsolicited manuscripts. I Xeroxed copies of the manuscript. I Federal expressed them all out to these agents, all of whom resided in New York. They all responded within a week. They all wanted to represent with the book. I went with a man, a man named Richard Hutner, who's no longer an agent, because he sounded the most intelligent and aggressive. He sold the book to Avon Books for a whopping 3500 bucks, which came to about 11 cents an hour. But it was over in a few months. Avon's offer came in early, so I knew that if I wanted to work for Birdseed, I was published. And it was, it was frankly, it was quite comforting. Yes? I got as far as the 10th grade. In the 10th grade? Well, actually, I got as far as the 11th grade. They put me back. Yeah. I like to read. I like to, I like to cut out of school and go play Slam the Ham and read a crime novel. That's what I like to do. Yeah. I go to the library, go buy books, go steal books. Yeah. How do you mean? The past four books, it has been my obsession with Los Angeles crime in the 1950s. Characters come to me within that framework, social situations, a certain investigatory thread asserts itself because up until the book that I'm writing now, my books have basically dealt with cops and homicide investigations. Before you know it, love triangles are occurring fiendish passions are exploding and 10 incidents become 50, become 150 and then it becomes a question of putting everything together in a thoughtful logically mapped out dramatically valid fashion lots of notes on character plot, milieu incident then I start putting things together. Then I jam all the way through in some detail to the end of the book in my own shorthand. Then I write it all out and expand it into formal outline language. Then my agent, Nat Sobel, reads it and gives me the aforementioned 30 to 40 pages of notes. I say yes, I say no, we haggle. Generally, we spend about 10 or 12 hours in three or four sessions going over the outline, then I write the book. You know what it's like? 
being a crime writer and having a certain having a certain degree of notoriety and being able to put all your passions and shames and weirdnesses and tenderness on, on paper. You know what it's like? It's like getting a head job from God. Pardon me? Does he use a computer? No, I do not use computer. I write by hand. I block print, uh, and I have a woman who types for me. To write a book? Back to back, because I always take time off to, to tour, and maybe take an occasional vacation, but basically tour here and in Europe. I'd have to say to write one of the L.A. Quartet books, it would average out to about a year and four months per book. Yeah. Yeah, man over here. Let's take the book that I'm writing now. The man wanted to know how much, you know, how much time is given over to the actual writing of the outline, the taking of notes, and the actual writing of the book, and what my daily schedule is. Let's call LA. Let's call the book I'm writing now American Tabloid. Let's let's talk about this one. Outline a year. Two complete drafts. I decided to. This is my epic pop history of America from 1958 to 1963. Jimmy Hoffa, the mob, Sam Giancana, Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, the McClellan Senate Rackets Committee, the Teamsters, Cuban Exiles, Fidel Castro, Howard Hughes, Scandal Sheet Journalism, Extortion, History as the Big Shakedown. I wrote the, the outline. It was 345 pages. Nat Sobel vetted it. I took it to Sonny Mehta, my, uh, my editor, the big kahuna at Alfred A. Knopf, the king of publishers. He said, it's terrific. The length worries me. It would have been an 800-page hardcover. And do you really want another book that features John Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe? I knew instinctively that he was right. I thought about it. I went on tour, and I cut and cut and cut. I cut 160 chapters to 98 in outline form. I shit-canned Marilyn Monroe. I kicked the Kennedy brothers down to supporting roles so that they are really, and I, you know, I have a great deal of respect and, and love and, and admiration for Robert Kennedy, and very little by comparison for his brother John, which is another story. And if you ask me, I'll tell you about it. But I realized that I could get a paradoxical power if I made these guys supporting characters to some tremendously groovy pimps, thugs, lower echelon CIA thugs, geeks, strangos, perverts, weenie waggers, honkers, in general, misanthropes. And so this is the sewer that the Kennedy brothers are now swimming in, in their new, revamped, Sonny Meta Kanaf vetted, Supporting actor roles. What's the title? 
American tabloid, Knopf, November 1994. December 1994, October, something like that. Yes. All right, Bill, my man. But he's with Barbara. <laughs> We have a lot of them. And I'm going to stop and, you know, I'm Barnaby's giving me the hook, but this does not end it. Believe me. We'll go outside there. I'll bullshit with each and every one of you and sign your books. So anyway, a couple of questions to, uh, to, to wind up the formal part of this evening. Yes, this man here. Uh, when you're doing research, yeah. Good question. This man asked me where I go to do research on L.A. in the 50s. Daddy-O, I make it up. Yeah, I make it up. I have been obsessed with Los Angeles during that time for many, many, many years. You know, it is bopping around in the, the deepest recesses of my soul. Yeah. I, just, I think about it. I think about it continually. Although, parenthetically, I have made a conscious decision to move outside of Los Angeles and to move outside the confines of the police novel, which is what I'm doing now. The big theme now that I'm working with is politics is crime. The big tableau is this. I want to recreate the totality of 20th century American history through crime novels. That's my life's work. Yes, this one over here. I dig Miami. Yeah. I like Cubans. I like them as people. And they make, they make for good crime fiction. And I speak a little bit of Spanish, which helps. Yes? I thought Jack, I thought John Kennedy compared to Robert Kennedy was shallow. I thought he was weak compared to Robert Kennedy. I thought Robert Kennedy was big-hearted, generous, painfully sensitive, demonically angry, and I will love him till the day I die because he did his level best to bring organized crime to its knees. Nobody did as much as he did before, and nobody has certainly done as much since. Most of our attorney generals, in fact, all of our attorney generals since, and all of our presidents, have reached accords with organized crime and have accommodated them straight down the line. I think the basic truth of the Kennedy tragedy, and I'm talking about the assassination of both men, is that Robert Kennedy, this tremendously brave and complex and ambiguous figure, felt compelled to punish the men that most morally resembled his father. I think it's the ultimate Oedipal drama. Yes, there's one over here. Could you, would you start over, please? 
This woman asked me, could I have become whatever writer I am if I had had different life experiences? I, I think it's an almost impossible question to answer. I think if the, if the wind you know, had blown just one iota more to the left or right on any given day, well, then maybe half the people in this room wouldn't be here now. And I think this is one of the great metaphysical questions that I'm not capable of answering. Yeah, we're in, the, we're in the back. Well, let's talk about it, you know, when I get out of here, when I get off the podium. Yeah, it's not too late. Yes, this woman over here. The woman asked me if I think, you know, are you talking basically about the violence in my books? If the violence in my books is a self-fulfilling prophecy, no, because, you know, most of the morons that perpetrate the urban violence that we all suffer from are incapable of getting through 50 pages of one of my books. The books themselves are difficult reading. And, uh, no, I think, I think that my books deglamorize violence and portray it as ugly. And, uh... I think I write about the patriarchy on the skids, which is a, uh, a phrase I borrow from my feminist wife, my feminist theologian wife. And uh, I think I portray it accurately, and I think I don't glamorize it at all. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger glamorizes violence. I think he gives us violence without ramifications, without any consequences at all. No, she's worse than me. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. No, I don't think I'm a social critic. I think I'm a social historian. I think that I do not posit solutions at all. I would hope that that there's a positive human effect that comes from my books. But I'm not naive enough to think that there really would be. I think it was W.H. Auden who said, for poetry makes nothing happen, it survives a way of happening, a mouth. I think he also said it survives in the ranches of isolation in the busy griefs, it survives where executives would never want to tamper. Yeah, I hope that that can be said about me. I don't know. I hope that people read an Elroy book and they say, wow, the world is a wild, obsessive, groovy, fucked up place. So I think I'm going to be nice to the next human being I see. I'm ready. Thank you. He came all the way from Boston just to talk to us. Now, he, now we put him to work out there. Probably the only kind of writing he really loved. Autographing. Thanks a million, James Elroy.